If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take it and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Our series through Colossians is titled Jesus, First Place in Everything. We've covered the first two chapters and uh, we're going to keep making our way along here for the next few weeks uh, before wrapping it up. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Here's what Paul says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. That's a quote from uh, John Owen, uh, the famous Puritan. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Is that your attitude towards sin? My favorite holiday, and um, I I hope I can get away with this without any judgment, my favorite holiday actually isn't Christmas or Easter, although those are my favorite events uh, in the life of Christ, but my favorite holiday is the 4th of July. It's Independence Day. Um, I love fireworks, and I love blowing stuff up, and I just love the 4th of July. The 4th of July is not about gifts and presents. Uh, It's about spending all the money you would spend on gifts and presents and buying things that go boom. And I love it. Uh, Ever since I was a kid, uh, growing up in Nebraska, fireworks were always legal. And so we were raised, uh, both my wife and I, in homes that that celebrated, really kind of went all out on the 4th of July. And so um, I I was glad to hear when Iowa legalized fireworks. I know there's even some controversy there, um, but but I give it a thumbs up. Uh, And so it was started by John Adams, and the the idea, the would-be president, John Adams, the idea was that when they signed the Declaration of Independence, he thought it'd be something that should be remembered in the most spectacular way. So guns, rockets, uh, music, parades, uh, bonfires, all these things. He expected that the American people would celebrate the Declaration of Independence. The idea being that freedom is a big deal and it's worth celebrating. But it's also a reminder, isn't it, of, of, of the, the, the bangs and the booms that, that freedom doesn't come without a fight. America's freedom doesn't come without a fight, but neither does our freedom from sin come without a fight. 
You may be in here and say, well, wait a minute. I thought when you trust Jesus as your Savior, aren't you, aren't you, aren't you set free from sin? Well, in a sense, and we're going to talk about that, you've been, you've been freed from the penalty of sin for now, but while you're on this earth, if you're in Christ, the power and the presence of sin rages on in your heart. And this passage is revealing all of that to us. We read this passage and we say, yeah, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. There's sin is still there. And if you feel caught or stuck in an endless cycle of sin, it's time to fight. And you say, I have been. It's time to fight the right way. Remember last week, we looked at the three dangers to avoid, and, and we, went through, uh, we went through legalism and mysticism and asceticism. And, and, and at the end of chapter 2, it, it says this whole idea of asceticism. Uh, if you look back at verse 23, it, says this, it has this, this appearance of making you look good. But the very last phrase is, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's like these things won't keep your flesh from indulging in sin. So the question naturally is what? Well, what will? What's the answer? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And when we look at these uh, from, from verse, from verse uh, 5 and verse 8, and we look at these lists of vices, we may think, well, is it really that big of a deal? And we realize it's a big deal once we realize that the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. Every sin is not a circumstance problem. Every sin is a heart problem. And our passage is going to answer this question of, of how, how, do I, how do I fight the right way? How do I get over sin? How do I fight this sin that seems to be lingering? It seems to, seems to just have me by the throat. But the idea of all this in this passage, even in the first, especially in the first four verses, is that what we know to be true about who we are in Christ, if you are indeed in Christ, is that what we know about who we are in Christ should play out in our lives. So doctrine should lead to delightful duty. Our position fuels our practice. And we have to keep Jesus at the center of everything we do. So we're going to jump right in this morning to the the three responsibilities that flow from union in Christ. Again, this is who you are in Christ playing itself out in life. Three responsibilities every Christian has that flow from our union with Christ. Number one is that very thing, seek Christ. Seek Christ. So he starts off here and says, if you have been raised with Christ. Well, if you've been raised, that means you've died. So the idea here is that you have died, you've left the old age, and you've been raised, you've, been, you've entered into a new age. And Romans chapter 6 would talk about this same thing. This is the starting point to killing sin. This is the starting point. You don't start here, you don't have victory. This is where it starts. If you have been raised with Christ... And so many times we say, I've, I've got this addiction, I've got this attitude, I've got, I've got this sin that I just can't shake. And we try harder. We go bare knuckles, white knuckles, grit our teeth. We try to gather ourselves up and we promise we will never do that again. That's the last time I'm ever going to, has anybody ever said that and it's worked? We've all said it. 
and it rears its ugly head again. This is where we start. Any Christian who sees and savors this truth is further down the road to holiness than a Christian who doesn't. We must start with realizing that we have a new way of life. And so he gives us some commands here. If you notice in in verse 1 and 2, he says, seek and set. Seek the things that are above, set your minds on things that are above. What he's saying here is we need to preoccupy our minds with heaven. And we need to preoccupy our minds with Christ who reigns in heaven. That is to say, if you're trying to conquer a sin, the best way to do that is not to keep thinking about that sin. That'll lead to more sin. The best way to fight sin is to preoccupy your mind with Christ. Because when we're, when, we're, when we're seeking the things that are above and we're setting our minds on things that are above, it'll govern our responses to the world. It'll govern, because that's, I mean, we're, we're, we are first, or we are constant responders, is what I should say. We're constant responders. And we're constantly responding to circumstances. So if your circumstances are constantly re- revealing impatience or anger or lust or whatever it is, you have to ask yourself, is my mind being preoccupied with Christ. You can ask yourself, are are my responses to what's happening today more in line with the political party or in line with the one who is seated at the right hand of God in the heavens? Is the way I respond to circumstances more in line with a worldview that says, I'm the center of the universe, or more in line with a worldview that says, Jesus is at the right hand of God, and he's the center of the universe. It governs our responses. It changes our outlook. We start to look at things through Christ's viewpoint. We value what King Jesus values. And it orients our thinking. I mean, he talks about the mind. Remember, seek the things that are above. Set your minds. This is a mind thing. It reminds us of Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. You remember the verse. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Which leads us to this question. How much of your thought life leads you to praise God? How much of your thought life leads you to praise God? Does your thought life bring you closer to sin, or does it bring you closer to God? Is your thought life, what orients your thought life? What is your thought life all about? Is it about your fantasies? Is your thought life about trying to orchestrate revenge? Try to figure out how you're going to get that person back for what they did to you. Is your thought life about how am I going to get ahead? How am I going to make sure I've got the power, I've got the prestige, I've got the money? What's your thought life focused on? Because that really determines where we go. And our thoughts are determined, our thoughts are determined by who we believe deserves the place of honor. Is it Jesus who's at the right hand of God or is it us? He gives us something else that's really amazing here in verse 3. And we really have to understand all this before we go on because we can't put anything to death if we don't understand this. 
But verse 3, it says your life is hidden with Christ. Like, that's amazing. I think this means three things. Number one, I think it means that you are united with Christ. That is, you died with Christ. So when he died, the penalty for your sin, if you're a follower of Jesus, the penalty for your sin was totally paid for. So even though the presence and the power of sin still affects us while we live on this earth, we have this great truth that my life is hidden with Christ. And there's also a sense here in which it's hidden with Christ, but it's also hidden from the world. It reminds us of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where it talks about the cross being folly to unbelievers, but, but, uh, but the gospel is power to those who believe. And even more than that, our life being hidden is it's kind of hidden from us too, isn't it? Let me tell you what I mean. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it'll be on the screen. Where John says, beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be, we have not seen yet. It hasn't appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So there's even this sense in which we're not even fully realizing the glory of being in Christ. But one day we will. We are eternally secure. We don't have to strive to gain assurance or approval. Jesus secured it for us. He's our life. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Now think about the Colossians here. Paul is writing this to the Colossians. What he's saying is this in glory, this small town, ex-pagan, mostly insignificant church will stand with Christ in his glory. And you might be in here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus and you say, man, I I'm ugly, I'm filthy, I'm gross, my sin, he wants nothing to do with me. Here's what this is saying. It matters not how ugly and filthy you think you look like before Christ. If you are in Christ, you will one day appear with him in full glory with him. That's the promise you have. And for those of you wondering how to get out of bondage to sin... How to find strength to kill sin. You've got to start here. Got to start here. In a previous ministry, a a young uh, man, a little bit younger than me, uh, came in uh, for counseling. And he tells me how a recent um, traumatic experience really just kind of unraveled his life. He was... Um, a godly young man, uh, going to Bible college, preparing to be a pastor and all these things. His parents were proud of him. Life was looking really good until this event. And in order to, what we would discuss, in order to medicate the pain, he became addicted to pornography, alcohol. He gained weight through food. He was going from job to job. He came in, he tells me, everything's, everything's just going wrong the life of godliness is gone. Going down the, being a, being, wanting to be a pastor, going down the tubes. Those proud parents that were there pre-trauma seem to dwindle. He's got all these addictions, all these problems. What did he need? He needed Christ. He needed to seek Christ. Don't try to slay sin if you're not seeking Christ. And I, you know, I told him this. I said, I think Satan would be just fine you getting over your addiction to pornography on your own. 
If you're not any closer to Christ at the end of it, but maybe you've got one sin that you were able to defeat on your own, but you are no closer to Christ, then that is, you are no better off. And if you're not seeking Christ, whatever the sin is that you're facing, if you're not seeking Christ, you're not going to truly be able to slay your sin, which is the next responsibility that we have. Number two, slay your sin. We're probably going to spend most of our time here this morning. This is the logical connection, all right? If you're a new man or a new woman in Christ, live like it. Live like it. Are you living like it? He says here in verse 5, put to death. Put to death. Again, the fact is we all face temptation. If you're a follower of Jesus, you still face temptation. And so Paul goes back and forth between the indicative, that is, you are dead with Christ, to the imperative, you should be putting to death your sin because we still face temptation. In Jesus, being united with Jesus, right here in, right in the here and now, the penalty of sin is totally paid for, will never face God's wrath. But again, the presence and the power of sin is still here. It's still, sin still attacks, and it's kill or be killed. Paul is saying here, bring your flesh under subjection. And maybe this reminds you of Matthew chapter 5. Uh, remember those words Jesus says, where he says, But I say to you, uh, this is verse 28, 29, and 30, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Then notice what Jesus says. You remember the words, if your right eye causes you to sin, do what? Tear it out. Tear it out. Throw it away. He says, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, what do you do? Cut it off. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now again, Jesus is not teaching self-harm here. He's not saying that you need to go physically harm yourself. Because we know that's we just chapter 2. We know that severity to the body is not the answer. But what is he saying? He's saying your sin should look so disgusting. It's like a, it's like a surgeon. Or, you know, a patient comes in and they have this gangrenous arm that's rotting you know it needs to be cut off it needs to be removed from the rest of the body so it doesn't infect the rest that's what jesus is saying get rid of everything that's contrary to godliness be what you are so what are we to kill we're going to look at both lists at the same time and then come back and and uh talk a little bit about how to kill this stuff there's a lot of vice lists if we want to put them that way Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. There's a number of times in scripture we have these lists of things that we need to avoid. But here in this passage, what are we to kill? I'm going to divide them into two groups. One is sexual sins. And verse 8, I'm going to put in social sins. Those are sins that, not that sexual sins aren't sins we commit against others, but, but uh, we're going to group those two in those two different ways. So the first thing Paul says is sexual immorality. This is God's prohibited sexual relations outside of marriage. Our culture is infatuated with sex, which God gave as a very good gift to us. But the goodness of sex is rooted in the greatness of God. And so you take God away 
From even this good gift that he's given to us, you take God away and perversion will ensue. And so that's why we must pursue Christ, not our own pleasure. Any sexual sin, from lust to whatever other end of the spectrum you want to go to, sexual sin is ultimately a breakdown in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. So I can't remember which Puritan, this is just coming to mind, I can't remember which Puritan, but he, he would say that every man that enters a brothel is really looking for Christ. But it's a breakdown in an intimate relationship with Jesus, which is why we have to start with seeking Christ. We have to trade off this, this infatuation with the perversion of sex with what God wants to give us, that is Christ. If we're not fully satisfied in Christ, then we will look for an affair or pornography or unconstrained lust to give us the delight that only can be found in Christ. And so Christian, Christian, you slay this sin by seeking Christ. Paul uses other words, uh, the word impurity. This is the misuse of sex or immoral behavior. He talks about passion. This is, this is lust let loose in mind or in action. He talks about evil desire, this idea of, of desiring gratification apart from Christ. They're all lumped together. Even the word, if you notice the last word in this, covetousness. He, is, he just came at this five different ways to show how all of us are sexual sinners. That's what Jesus did too in Matthew 5. Anybody looks with lust, he's already committed adultery. Covetousness. And over in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul connects covetousness again with sexual immorality, where he says this. He says sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, there it is, must not even be named among you as is proper for the saints. This idea, this covetousness is unchecked hunger for physical pleasure. And it can go even broader than, than just the, 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 the kind we're talking about here. It can, it can go to, a, to a, an object or a possession or money or a car. But it's unchecked hunger for physical pleasure. It's when some other object of desire takes the place of God. This is why he equates it here in Colossians 3 to idolatry. So when the center of your desires and devotions is something other than God. That's sin. Sin is idolatry. Sin is when you and I devote our hearts to something other than God. It's acting like the all-satisfying Jesus doesn't even exist. Which is why Stephen Sharnock would say all sin is founded in secret atheism. We deny God's sovereignty over us. We, we stiff-arm his right to rule our lives. We pursue our own glory. We, we pursue our own pleasure. We pursue our own desires and our own satisfaction apart from him. That's secret atheism. We have all these things, this big list of things that rule our heart. To overcome such great sin will require great power. 
Praise be to God, we have the risen Jesus. Paul talks about these, what I'm labeling as social sins in verse 8, where he says, put aside. So the idea is still the same. So those you're supposed to put to death, here he's saying, put these, put them aside, change clothes. Literally, the idea is, is take off the clothes. Change your clothes. Get rid of those clothes. It's like a worn out suit or clothes that are worn out. You can't wear anymore. Get, them, get rid of them. Anger is the first one, this deep smoldering. Again, circumstances reveal anger. They don't make anger. Have you ever said, you made me angry? Anybody ever said that? Or, man, that, that circumstance, that situation, or what happened today at work really made me angry. Guess what? It revealed you're an angry person, but it didn't make you angry. This sort of anger is a, is a, is a target-acquired way of living. It's kind of the idea of someone always on the lookout. Who's standing in my way? Who's not giving me what I want? Who's doing something that I don't want them to do? It's like a heat-seeking missile just looking for someone to lay into. The angry man is always on alert for what he perceives are injustices being done to him. Men, how do you respond when your wives ask you to do the dishes? Ladies, how do you respond when, when that kid makes another mess when you just told him not to be messing with stuff? How okay are you with not getting your way? Anger. I mean, the word wrath, it, it kind of goes all into this as well. This sudden outburst. Malice, this anger in the heart again, slander. It gets into our, our tongue, slander. These are insults and disparaging remarks, which is interesting because anger leads to wrath, which leads to malice, which leads to slander. Slander is usually majoring on the faults of others. And then in here he says obscene talk. This is, again, speech intended to hurt. It's coarse joking. It's, it's filthy talk. It's something that contaminates the hearers. And then he says in verse 9, do not lie to one another. So any untruth, or trying to make the truth look better than it maybe is. We have to admit, truth is often inconvenient and embarrassing. And so we try, to, you know, we try to make it look a little bit nicer so it's not as embarrassing or it's a little bit more palatable. It's not as messy looking. We don't like the truth because it's often just that. Now I want you, in verse 6 and 7, he gives us reasons to stay away from both lists. He says, first, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now that doesn't mean believers will experience God's wrath, but the idea is this. Why participate and those behaviors, desires, affections, and attitudes that are characteristic of those who will experience the wrath of God. The idea is this. You've been spared from hell, so spare no sin. Be ruthless in your removal. Just the other day, a video was released... Um, uh, from, a, from a garage cam that, that captured an unexpected occurrence, occurrence in North Carolina. 
a couple um, in there in North Carolina. They were just they lived in a normal North Carolina neighborhood. They were walking to their car from the house when all of a sudden, as the husband went to go put a pan of brownies or something like that in the back of their car, as the wife was getting into her car, she was attacked by a bobcat. And hearing her screams, of course, the husband, he, he ran over there and he, and, he, and he grabbed the bobcat. And you can see in the video, he tears, he's carrying it halfway and he throws it halfway across the yard. He pulls out his concealed gun and I'll let you guess what happened next. He went over there, he grabbed it, and he threw it. He chased it down, and he shot it for the attack. When's the last time you did that with your sin? You went over there, and you, you grabbed it. You took it halfway across the yard. You threw it down, and you shot it in the name of Jesus. When's the last time you did that? I don't know if he did it in the name of Jesus or not, but when have you done it with your sin? When have I? You've been spared from hell, so spare no sin. What sin are you letting hang around in your life? What sin are you saying, I have to let it hang around? I've tried everything. I can't get rid of my addiction. I can't get rid of this attitude. I'm as grumpy now as I was 10 years ago. I can't shake it. And so I guess I just have to let it hang around. You've been spared from hell, so spare no sin. Paul even says, this is, this is part of your past. This is all part of your past. He says in these two, verse 7, you once walked. If you've had any experience with sin, you know how much it costs. That's what, that's what kind of Paul is saying here. Hasn't it cost you enough? Hasn't that anger cost you enough? Has not pornography cost you enough? Can you not see your life being sucked from you? Have not the lies cost you enough? Is slander and malice and hate really giving you the fulfillment you long for? Has not sin cost you enough? Leave it all behind. And go back to what we talked about first. Seek and pursue Christ. The battle for holiness rages on. How's the fight going? Yes, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's what James, remember James chapter 1 says, the end of the production line for sin is death. But verse 10 gives us the great reality here. And he says, you've, been, you've put on the new self. Again, this is something that says, you've already done this. You're new. You're a new person. You're a new creation in Christ. And it says it's being renewed in knowledge. Here's what I want to say to you. Jesus wants to renew you. Did you know that? Yes, positionally, Jesus has made us new. But in practice, Jesus wants to continually make us look more like him. There's great hope here. There's great hope here in this room for you, for me. There's great hope for the sexually immoral. There's great hope for the angry person. There's great hope for the liar, 
for the impure, for the covetous, and every other person, there's great hope. Jesus wants to make you look like him. And he's all in on it. How cool is that? How cool is that? Jesus, Jesus is saying, there is more, in Jesus, there is more to you than you. In Jesus, there is more to you than your addiction. In Jesus, there is more to you than your sin. Wow! Man, I wish I understood this. Man, Lord, grip my heart with this. Once God gives his life to you through Jesus Christ, he'll never take it back again. No matter what sin you're facing, you are not so great a sinner that you are going to out-sin the Son of God. Love it, savor it, and use it to kill your sin and let Jesus in. When you invite someone over, do you ever have maybe that room or that closet you leave closed? Like, I hope they don't go in there. Right? When I go over to people's houses, sometimes I say, I'm going to give myself a tour, and I'll just start, uh, you know, I'll tour. So if you invite me over, make sure it's all clean. Uh, I want to see, what's this house look like? But, you know, when we come over, we want to make sure maybe, maybe there's that one bathroom that we're not going to clean, and so if they need to use the bathroom, we'll tell them to use, you know, that one in the hallway or the one downstairs, whatever. Or there's a closet we want to make sure people don't go into. What dark closet do you have set as off-limits to Christ? What room do you say, Jesus, you can go anywhere else, just don't enter that one place in my past. Jesus, you can go anywhere else, don't enter that one thing that I just can't get rid of in my life. What room do you have in your heart in your past, in your life, that you think if Jesus went in there, he would hang his head in utter disappointment and he'd walk out of the house. Not gonna happen, ever. Jesus stands at the door and he knocks, Christian, on your door. Open the door, let him in, he'll straighten it out. Something very interesting happens next in this passage in verse 11. Paul goes from all of this in this sin we're supposed to kill and then it almost seems random when he gives us this third responsibility where he says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. It's like before he tells us who Christ is, he wants us to give us one more thing because sin, we, we don't just struggle with sexual sins, we don't just struggle with those sins of anger and lying and malice, there's another sin we struggle with. It's divisiveness. The third responsibility is we need to shatter divisions. Seek Christ, slay sin, shatter divisions. These are sinful barriers. And again, this almost seems out of place. How do we go talking about all of that and now we're talking about Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbaric, whatever. I mean, this just seems out of place. It's because this often is the fruit of our selfish, self-pursuing sin. When we're pursuing our own self-pleasure through the list in verse 5, when our lives are played out the way it plays out, as it says in verse 8, this is the natural result. Our relationships with people shatter. 
Now, these barriers are based on race, culture, culture, and social status. And it's just as much a part of our sinful nature as the lists we looked at. So you may be thinking, oh my goodness, I never thought my heart could be, have so much crud in it. It does. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Our Savior is here and he will help. Verse 11, as we look at this very briefly, isn't saying that there aren't racial, cultural, and social differences in the church. It means that nobody has any privilege based on those things. Galatians 3.28, Paul says the same thing. There's neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, no male, female, for you are all one in Christ. Differences, yes. Difference in spiritual status, no. The gospel ignores cultural differences. So just think about this. As we think about relationships, the Jews would not enter a Gentile's house. They wouldn't eat meat that was from a Gentile butcher. They thought that their physical procedure of circumcision made them more spiritual. You have that word barbarian and Scythian in verse 11. Now this was, Scythian was a byword for uncultured barbarianism. They were viewed as little better than savages. As a matter of fact, the Jewish historian Josephus says this, Scythians delight in murdering people and are little better, little better than wild beasts. They were a rowdy bunch with filthy habits and archaeolo- archaeological discoveries have found that they were very heavily tattooed. And Paul is coming saying here, listen, in Christ, those differences have no reason to cause any division whatsoever. Those divisions might have been important in the ancient world or where you live, but in the gospel they become totally irrelevant in questions of love and honor and respect. What he was saying is that the Scythian, the ones that were viewed as little better than wild beasts, is as fully united to Christ as a redeemed Jew. So it doesn't matter who you are. If you are in Christ, you are as fully in Christ as anybody else who is in Christ. Now there are differences that the gospel turns into divisions. We know that. But these are differences that the gospel ignores. Jesus brings unity. Unity is impossible. True relationships are impossible with someone in the habit and addiction of sexual sin. Relationships and unity is impossible for someone who is so caught in anger and hate and malice. And what it's almost as if, as if Paul is saying, you want to test this stuff out? What's your relationship like with the, the barbarian? We don't all wear the same clothes. We don't, don't all come from the same background. The same, we don't share the same race or culture. But all who believe in Jesus have the same Jesus. And so divisiveness must be shattered. Prejudices must be destroyed. We've got to get over ourselves in every way. We've got to get over ourselves when it comes to sexual sin. We've got to get over ourselves when it comes to anger and lying and malice and obscene talk. We've got to get over ourselves when it comes to differences. Are you feeling like a moral failure? Join the club, Romans 3.23. And hear this. For those of you who don't know Jesus, God will not condemn 
any moral failure who comes to Christ. He promises to justify you, to count you as righteous. Jesus is God. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead. And by turning from your sin and believing in the crucified and risen Jesus, you will be saved. For you followers of Jesus who are hanging your head in guilt and shame because of what you did last night or what you did last year or what you did five years ago, strengthen your knees and lift your drooping hands like Hebrews 12 tells us. God's love will never leave you. Nothing can separate you from God's love. God will never say, I've had enough of you. Martin Luther, the great reformer, taught us how to fight. Listen to these words. He says, when the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner and therefore damned, we should answer, because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. And I reply, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins and try to bring me into heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that with your own sword I may cut your throat and tread you under my feet. For Christ died for sinners. As often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of this benefit, of the benefit of Christ, my Redeemer, on whose shoulders, and not mine, lie my sins. So when you say, I am a sinner, You do not terrify me, but comfort me immeasurably. Seek Christ, slay sin, shatter divisions for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, may that be the theme of our song, uh, the theme of our life, the song that we sang earlier. All I have is Christ. Oh God, that Christ would fill this church, that you would fill every heart. For those who are still in their sins, would you save them? For those Christians who are so distraught, feeling condemned in the weight of their sin, may you lift them up. May you lift their eyes and their minds and their hearts to Christ. Fill us, Lord, with Christ, and may we be killers of our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.